We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. I'm so thankful that you are here this morning to continue to study God's Word with us together as we walk through the book of, books of First and Second Thessalonians. We are in a series right now entitled, Our Great and Glorious Hope. So I invite you to take your copy of God's words and turn with me again to First Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to be in just a few short verses of Scripture this morning, verses 9 through 12. As you're taking just a few moments to find that together this morning, there is a football player that you've probably never heard of. An NFL football player that you probably have never heard of. His name is Joe Thomas. And the reason that the name Joe Thomas is significant, an offensive tackle that some people would say probably would just fade into obscurity, but he accomplished something that I think we need to mention. It's something that, that we really ought to talk more about. You see, Joe Thomas was drafted in 2007 and began starting as a rookie at offensive tackle. From 2007 all the way until 2017, 10 years as an offensive lineman and as a pro, he never missed a single offensive snap. He played 10,363 offensive snaps in a row over 10 years. When he finally got hurt on the field and had to be taken off the field, they happened to be at home, and while they were at home, the entire stadium stood up and gave him a round of applause because Joe Thomas, for every moment he had been there, did what he was asked to do. He played hurt, he played tired, he played when there was things that probably could have kept him out. But they interviewed Joe Thomas after this game, and it was one of the most simple yet profound statements that I have ever heard. This is what he said when they talked about his legacy and how he had played so many snaps in a row. He said, there is something, and this is a quote, there is something that I heard years ago that I have found a great deal of comfort in. And he paused and he looked at the interviewer and he said, just do your job. Just do your job. It's amazing sometimes as we come to the Christian faith that sometimes we overcomplicate when really the call on our lives is to just do our jobs. As Paul writes to the Thessalonian church, he is writing them because he wants them to understand that there is a necessity of doing the practical things in your life and doing them well. This church was eagerly anticipating Christ's return, which is wonderful, and it's something that every church and every individual ought to do. But the problem was that they were expressing this anticipation by adopting the mistaken notion that their ordinary life responsibilities weren't really important. None of them believed that they, that they all believed that Jesus was going to come back during their lifetime. So because of that, they began to say, what does it matter what we're doing here and now? Because Jesus is going to return. So they began to be irresponsible in some of the things that were absolute essentials to life. So 
this morning, what we're going to see is Paul calls them back to the recognition that whether Jesus comes back in your lifetime or whether Jesus does not come back in your lifetime, there are some essential elements, some very practical elements to your faith that you need to be practicing. And today, we could have entitled the message, Just Do Your Job. But you see the title this morning is Where the Rubber Meets the Road. Every single one of you have heard that expression at some times in, in your life. And it means this is where the action starts. This is how it is going to be done. This is how it is going to play out. So this morning, we are going to see specifically what doing our jobs where the rubber meets the road really does look like. So let's stand together and let's read God's Word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I'll begin in verse 9. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody." Pray with me. Lord, help us to carry out the, responsibility that you have get, the responsibilities that you have given us with diligence and excellence until we meet you face to face. Amen. Please be seated. And our prayer this morning, you'll see that on the screen, is our big idea that the Lord through this text would teach us to carry out our God-given responsibilities with diligence and excellence until all of us meet Jesus face to face. Now, as you know, that is going to happen one of two ways. You are either going to meet Jesus face to face. If you are a believer, you are either going to meet him by death or you're going to meet him by rapture. But either way, we want to be found faithful in the time that we have. And so we're going to jump right into this this morning, and we're going to talk about the ways that Jesus says we ought to carry out these God-given responsibilities. Number one, he says, continue to grow in love for each other. Continue to grow in love for each other, verses 9 and 10. He says, now, we don't really need to write to you about this brotherly love. You have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love each other. But he reminds them, no matter how much you love each other, you could love each other more. Think about this for just a moment. When you are expressing your affection for a family member, a child, a parent, when you're expressing your love for your wife or your husband, how crazy would it be to look at them and say, you know what, I love you, and I think I love you about as much as I'm ever going to love you. I think I've hit my limit. I mean, my, my love reservoir is full. No. When you're expressing that, one of the things I think that you have learned over the course of your life is that we don't fall less in love with people, we fall more in love with people. You couldn't have, when my children were born, you couldn't have convinced me for anything that I would ever love them more than I did the day they were born. I'd have fought you if you told me that I was going to love them more. And you know what? Somehow I do. When I fell in love with my wife, I would have told you there's no way, not only that now, but that anybody's ever loved anyone as much as I love her. And you know what? Over 20 years later, I love her more now than I did the day that we met each other. 
And that's because we grow in love. And he's telling the church, it's not that you're not doing a good job of loving each other, but don't ever rest on your laurels thinking that you've done enough or that you love each other enough, but continue to love each other. John 13, 25 says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. One of the things I'm excited about at First Baptist Summit is to see the continued growth in what God is doing. Now, when I say growth, automatically we think about numbers, and obviously God is blessing us with that. But one of the reasons that God is blessing us with that, people would say, well, what are all the reasons behind that? First of all, some of those are the divine providence of God, and I can't tell you why he decides to do what he does all the time, but I can give you a few suggestions. I think certainly I pray that we uplift the Lord in corporate worship. I pray that the Bible is preached, but one of the foundational elements to church growth and church health is a body of believers, you, that love each other, that care about each other, and continue to express that. A church shouldn't be known by its divisions. It shouldn't be known by its fights. It shouldn't be known by its anger. It ought to be known by how it loves each other in very practical ways. If you were wondering how that you, the foremost way that you should let the world know that you're a believer. The Bible says it's by how you show how you love other believers. You say, wait a minute, what, what about the rest of the world? We're to love them too. But if the church loves the church how the church is supposed to love the church, then the outside world sees that the church is different because it's holy, because it's unique, and people want to be a part of that because it's something this world doesn't understand. The world can't explain it because our world is inherently selfish. Our, our world inherently only wants what it can get for itself, for mine and, my, and ours. But what the church says is we are collectively concerned about each other. So if you are most concerned about putting a good testimony forward as individuals and as the church, we're not known because we've tattooed a fish somewhere on our body. We are not known because we got some cute bumper sticker and put it on the back of our truck. We're not even known because of some trendy jewelry that has a cross. We are supposed to be known by the way that we love each other. That's practical. That's where the rubber meets the road, number one. But number two, number two, look all the way at the end of verse 12 and we'll work our way back. He says, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and you will not be dependent on anyone. Not only do you continue to grow in love for each other, but number two, you live to win the respect of outsiders. Who are outsiders? That's the lost. Those are, that's obvious. Those are people that are not a part of the church. He's saying you need to have such a powerful testimony that the gospel will be credible. You live and love so that non-Christians can see how we operate and it will draw them to Christ. Now, Often when evangelism, I, th I think we've created a false dichotomy between the two. For the longest time, people talked about that we just need lifestyle evangelism. In other words, we don't really have to share the gospel. We can just live out the gospel. And if we live out the gospel, people are going to be attracted to that and want to become Christians. Now, let me give you the fundamental flaw there. 
We certainly need to live out the gospel, but if nobody ever tells them the gospel, it really isn't going to matter how you live because we're going to lead a horse to water, but we're not going to give him anywhere to drink because Jesus says that he is the water that brings it about that we should never thirst again, that he is the bread of life. So eventually you have to share the gospel. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. We have to declare the gospel. We have to speak the gospel. But the pendulum swung, and then a lot of people began to focus solely on the declaration of the gospel. And I think that that's a false dichotomy because we need both. You need to live the gospel so people will listen to the gospel. You need to live the gospel, and then people will listen to the gospel. That's the point that Paul is making to this church. And he tells them that there's ways that you should live the gospel. Very, very practical ways. Look at verse 11. What does he say we need to do? Number one, make it your ambition, your goal. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Lead quiet lives. Lead quiet lives. Now, what does that mean? Well, obviously, it doesn't mean that you're to live some noisy, agitated, frenzied existence. It's not what you're meant for. So often, I think, not just 2,000 years ago, but now we have believers that are proverbially running around like chickens with their heads cut off. And their, their life looks anything but quiet. Their life looks anything but measured. Their life looks anything but calm. Their life looks like it doesn't even bear the peace of Christ that goes along with it. And he said, part of the reason that you can lose your testimony is because you don't live like you're saved. Because, And, and I guess this would be a modern way to say it. You look, act like you are so stressed out and anxious all the time that there's no testimony in that. Because people are looking and saying, if that's the difference God has made, I need no part of that. It is not a marker of your holiness that you're stressed out. It is not some spiritual feather in your cap if you are so frantic that you don't know up from down. In fact, Paul says that is the opposite of a quiet life. This is about not speaking out inappropriately, and it's also about being at peace and being tranquil not living a life full of hostility. I truly believe there are some people that are Christians that need to hear this so loudly because it's not that we run away from a fight. It's not that we're unwilling to have confrontation. But there is a, a group of Christian people who I truly believe are intentionally living their lives in such a way that they think boldness and being a jerk is synonymous. And they're not synonymous. We have to find a balance between understanding that we want to absolutely declare what, who we are and what we believe, but we aren't offensive for the sake of being offensive. Now follow me, there's a difference. If we're going to offend someone for the sake of the gospel, that's one thing. But if we're offending people because our personality is terrible, that's different. That's not a quiet life. And so he's addressing this and he's saying, you shouldn't be someone that's such a burden that you're constantly drawing attention to yourself. 
It doesn't mean we should be less excited about Jesus. It means we should be less frantic in the way that we live our lives. I don't know that there is a more practical suggestion for the modern Christian life than to lead quiet lives. I don't know that there's very many people, if we're honest, that wouldn't say, you can stop the sermon now because I need to repent. I, I need to repent. My life is hectic and frantic, and the way that expresses itself so often is that we have lost the ability to be quiet. We have speaking classes, but we rarely have classes that teach people to find solitude, to find silence as a spiritual discipline. Especially if we, the church, are going to contradict everything in culture. A culture that says we should tout our accomplishments, that we should be a people who are always out there, who are making a name for ourselves, who want to be liked and want to be popular and want all of those things. And so we need to ask ourselves the practical question this morning, how, if you were going to do this, if you said, uh, I don't disagree that I need to do that, but how? How am I practically going to live a more quiet life? How is that going to happen? Well, a few things that, that I think we need to do. One of them's real simple. You're not going to lead a quiet life if you're never quiet. I think the King James Bible calls it shutteth up. <laughs> Find some time in your life where you are quiet. And I don't just mean not verbally speaking. I mean that you are at, at a quiet place. That's going to look like you're going to have probably some times where you're going to have to get away from technology. You're going to have to find some ways to quiet your life. Also, I think that it does have to do with the way we act and the way we behave. That sometimes that our... Mother, what she told us growing up, that we ought to think before we speak. Isn't that amazing? Take about three seconds and just ask yourself the question, is that wise? Is that really going to help something? You know how many problems a lot of you would avoid if you practiced the three-second rule? Lord, make it, I make it my prayer today that you help me to keep my mouth shut when I ought to keep my mouth shut. It is better to be thought a fool than to open your mouth and to remove all doubt. A lot of us remove all doubt every day. And so leading a quiet life is really important, but, but let me address how that fleshes out. 2,000 years ago, they didn't have to worry about this. You very much have to worry about it. What you post and share on social media is an extension of your life. And if you're constantly touting, touting your own accomplishments or your own life, or you're putting stuff, even if you're just putting stuff out there all the time, at some point, you need to take a rest. Some of you need to fast from social media. That would be a fantastic exercise for a lot of us. I'm just getting off of that for a while. I promise you, I've never heard anyone do that and say, you know what, that was terrible. 
two days off of social media and I almost couldn't, couldn't live my life, most people begin to go, you know what, I needed that. This is real practical. It's about leading a quiet life, but it's not only leading a quiet life, but look at the next, this is a lot to cover in, in one little verse of scripture. Look, look at what he follows up with. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, comma, to mind your own business. Rut row. Right? So part of my testimony is that I mind my own business. What does that mean? It means you need to quit running around meddling in everybody else's problems. I really believe this. One of the reasons we meddle in everybody else's problems is so we don't have to deal with our own. And so we talk about things and we get involved with things. Instead of handling our own affairs and really working hard and doing the best that we can, the Bible calls them busybodies who are placing their nose where they don't belong. There are people like that throughout life. If you want to know whether or not that you are dealing with this, in case you're looking for a checklist to say, am I someone that's minding my own business? Let me just go ahead and clear the air. You could do a better job. We all could do a better job. Because most of the time, we need to spend more time worrying about whether our own house is in order than what other folks are doing. That's true in high school. That's true in college. There is a difference in whether or not you are honestly caring about someone. Now, this is, this is a hard issue. I'm not telling you that we should never know what's going on in people's lives. But you know yourself well enough to know whether or not you honestly care or whether you're just a meddler. You know. I, I think in the South, we've almost gloried in being in other people's business. Oh, bless their heart. <laughs> You're a meddling gossip. You ought to repent of your sin and quit worrying about other people when your house is completely messed up, when your life is messed up, when you ought to be thinking about things that you need to be different, doing different. Yeah, their family's got some issues. I'm not disputing that. Yours has some issues. And so what... Paul is trying to tell them is it's a whole lot better testimony to the world if you're not somebody who's constantly in other people's affairs when it's obvious that you've got some things in your own life that need to be fixed. Now, this is certainly in the way that we get involved in other people's lives, but it's also when we tout ourselves because we want other people in our business. You say, oh, not me. I don't want anybody in my business. I think you do. I, I think you like people being in your business. Sometimes we like to invite things so we can complain about it. But if you're constantly posting stuff, and then you're worried about, and then you're like, I don't know why they're talking about me. You wanted them to. You put your whole life out there, all your opinions, all your business. You touted your accomplishments. You talked about your kids all the time. Well, that's going to invite judgment. That's going to invite envy. It's going to invite gossip. At some point, you shouldn't be involved in everybody else's business, but you ought to also be looking at your life and going, you know what, there's some things I could do different if I didn't want people in my business all the time. 
Some of it's their fault, some of it's ours. How am I leading a quiet life so that I'm not inviting people to be in my business all the time? And by the way, if you're all the time in somebody else's business, then who are you to judge somebody else for wanting to be in yours? That doesn't make any sense. Lead quiet lives. Mind your own business. And then really, really clearly, work with your hands. Just as we told you. Work with your hands so that he says you do not have to depend on others. That's what the end of verse 12 says. In Greek culture, they saw manual labor as degrading. But one thing the church did was to bring dignity and honor to manual labor. You see, the reason that this was an issue in Thessalonica is that because they thought Jesus' return was going to happen any minute, they then thought that their work didn't matter. But what Paul said is, if you really do believe that Jesus could come back at any second, you ought to work harder. Why? It's real simple. Jesus is going to be perfectly okay with you if he comes back and you're doing your job. Why? Because Paul commanded, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Well, you can't very well do it to the glory of God if you're going halfway at your work. If you're someone that's not really dependable, if you're someone that's not going to be where they're supposed to be, if you're somebody that's not going to be on time, if you're somebody that's not going to do their job to the best of their ability, that is absolutely essential to a Christian witness. Because if you don't carry out your life in that way, then why in the world would anybody care about your witness and they certainly don't care about the church that you go to? By the way, if you're a terrible employee, don't invite anybody that you go, to, that you go to work with, don't invite them to church. Why? Because you've already told them the kind of person you are and they don't want to come. Because they're going to say, oh, if that church produces people like that, I'm not really interested. So before you go sharing where you go to church, be a person at your work that people say, wow, you know, it's obvious something's different here. The way they work, the way they carry themselves, the way they do their job. Because work is a gift from God. It is fascinating that God put work on earth before the fall. Adam had work to do before sin entered the world. Now, the work got harder after sin entered the world. But work in and of itself, I don't know where we've gotten to a place where we have thought that work inherently was a bad thing. It's a gift of God, so we work hard. It shouldn't make us less diligent, but a better employee, a better boss, understanding that work is a gift, understanding that God is pleased to find us doing our job and doing them well, and that that alone creates the opportunities to share our faith. One of the greatest ways that we love each other is by doing our jobs well. If you do what you're supposed to do, that's a great way to love somebody respectable it's honorable and people bring it as a matter of integrity i guess and i'll be honest i think covid is an excuse but it's like the past few years the world's gotten sorry i mean it was sorry before but now we're still blaming covid for everything i can't work can't get supplies here. We, we can't get the job done. You, you know COVID. 
COVID is, was a significant event. But it is not the eternal excuse of the Christian not to do what we said we're going to do. And so we need to be a people that are leading out in that and that understand that. And the greatest way that we can love each other is by doing our job well. So let's just, let's just go through the list real quick. Hang with me. We're supposed to love each other more and more, win the respect of outsiders, and we win that respect by leading quiet lives, minding our own business, and working with our hands, doing our jobs well so that we don't have to depend on others. Notice that that depend on others is a big deal. I'm not going to get off into every political movement right now, but a society that does not reward hard work and incentivizes laziness is a society that is in deep, deep trouble. Paul would say later, later and we're going to talk about that when he gets there, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. He's saying for the church, you, he's talking to church members specifically, don't be lazy so that other church members have to take care of you when you have no excuse for not doing what, what you can do. That's good advice. That's good advice to a church. That's good advice to a culture. That's good advice to individuals. And so we look at this list and we ask ourselves by this list, are you a loving person? Are you a loving person? Notice I'm not talking about how emotional you feel. Not do you feel loving. Are you loving? By the actions that you see on this screen, are you a loving person? Are you somebody that leads quiet life? Are you somebody that minds your own business? Do you work hard and try to win the respect of, eat, of others? Are you continuing to love people more and more? Now, if you're wondering where the gospel fits into all of this, I'm really glad that you asked. Because this is not some sermon on legalism that you need to do these things to earn God's favor or God's salvation. In fact, the gospel is the background to every one of these commands. Why? Because Jesus did his job well. This is my son whom I love and am well pleased. And it's not by accident that his last words on the cross were, it is finished. You could paraphrase that, I did my job. I loved you enough. Jesus often lived a very quiet life. He found him place in solitude. He refused to answer people all the time. Even in his very last days, the accusations came at him and it said that Jesus kept quiet. Jesus was somebody who said, well, he didn't mind, he, he, he didn't mind his own business. Jesus was never a meddling gossip. When Jesus got involved in someone's life, it wasn't just so he could know what was going on with them so he could talk about them when he left. He got involved with their lives because he wanted to change them out of true love. Jesus was a carpenter's son that worked with his hands, and if you read the Gospels, you would have a very difficult time proving to me that Jesus didn't work diligently during his three years of public ministry and even before that. And then he finished his job at Calvary so that you and I could be forgiven of our sin. Oh, the blood 
that washes me. You say, Brother Larry, I'm going to be honest. Reading that list, I got a little ways to go. Yeah, me too. So is the, today's message just get out of here and try harder? No. Probably do need to try harder. But if you're wondering where you're going to find the power to succeed in that effort, you're not going to find it in yourself. Where you're going to find that is in the power of the blood of Jesus that we sang about this morning. That you're going to recognize that not only do you have an example in Jesus, but that you have the empowerment by His Spirit. And we want to live like Christ. That's what sanctification is. Some of the time as you look through this, I know that some people say, well, when we, how does this affect our everyday life? I want application. Can you think of anything more applicable than these few verses? As you pour over them and look at our lives and say, I want my life and I want my church to reflect a testimony that lives in such a way that whether Jesus comes back in this moment or whether it's five generations from now, I want to be found faithful. Would you stand with me? Thanks for listening to FBC Summit. We are leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. For more information, visit our website, fbcsummit.org.